Greetings, this is J.R. Dickey. Thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And by the way, don't forget our website, graceandtruth.net. I hope you're having a great day, but if not, hang with me. It's about to get better. Okay, today we're going to continue with Genesis chapter 6. Now recall, I'm calling this chapter the catastrophe, and this is part two of two. Let's go on. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect, that is, blameless, in his generations. Noah walked with God. I find this very interesting. Noah was just and literally blameless in his, quote, generations. Note the plural. This word literally means a turning. The plural is used frequently in Scripture, but to attribute a single characteristic to one person over a series of generations, that's unique. I'm inclined to believe this is a symbolic reference to the Jewish people, but more specifically, to the remnant according to the election of grace, as in Romans 11, 1-5. These are those who are indeed blameless because of grace through faith, Refer to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Now, God himself says that the Jewish people as a whole are in practice anything but just and blameless. In fact, the Bible is filled with God's dealing with them for their injustice and wicked ways. However, there are some other scriptures that beginning with Abraham indicate that God's perspective of his people is nonetheless assertive of the positive as a loving father toward his children. For example, when initiating the Abrahamic covenant, God says to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. That's in Genesis 17 verse 1. Later to the children of Israel, Moses declared, You shall be blameless before the Lord your God, which was a prophetic word, which he followed with another prophecy that I'm convinced indicates how this blamelessness would happen. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Of course, that was speaking of Christ. That's in Deuteronomy 18. From the tabernacle to the altar of sacrifice to the Ark of the Covenant, the writings of Moses are filled with pictures of the Son of God. In fact, many of the rituals used by the Levites and priests are representative of placing the blame which justly belongs to Israel upon a sacrificial lamb or upon the scapegoat, the types of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. That's John 5.46. But how can a people, any people, be just and blameless in the eyes of God? Well, only by the grace of God. That is, by accepting the gracious gift of God's Son, who died in our place upon the cross, and in doing so took our blame and carried our sins. And as Paul wrote, the day will come 
when the Jewish people will recognize and accept Jesus as their Messiah. And that's when they'll be blameless. But can this grace, this revelation of Christ, be given to the last day's Jews? Can that affect their previous generations? Hmm. Will it somehow span their generations? Hmm. Will the goodness of God reach back to those whose eyes were blinded since the time of Christ? We know that when Jesus went to the grave and then rose again, the people who were in paradise, and refer to Luke 23, 39-43 on this, followed him to heaven. That is, all the believers in God who had died up to that time were resurrected. Captivity was taken captive. And we know that since those who have died knowing the Lord, being saved, are also with him, because Paul wrote, quote, To be absent from the body is, quote, to be present with the Lord. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 8. But what about all the Jewish people since the time of Christ who would have believed if their eyes had not been blinded? What does the Bible say? Quote, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Well, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear, to this very day. The elect Paul speaks of here are the Jews and Gentiles who did hear the Lord Jesus and got saved during the birth of the church. So, who are the rest who were blinded? This is rest of Israel at the time of Christ's earthly ministry and those since. But Paul continues, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. The blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, quote, The Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of wisdom and knowledge of God. Check out Romans 11, many verses there. I do believe that when God says all Israel will be saved, he means all Israel will be saved. All the elect, all whom he foreknew, all those according to the election of grace. In other words, I'm inclined to think this grace is not confined to a single generation of the last days. God is committed to fulfill his word, and he is fully able. Well, we'll see. Genesis goes on. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Again, these names are significant, for as we consider the Jewish people 
and the circumstances surrounding them in the last days, these names are very appropriate. You see, Shem means renowned or name. Ham means hot. And Japheth means widespread. So how are these names or word pictures of the Jewish people in the last days? Well, let's look at some scriptures and consider Shem as a starting point. In Ezekiel 39, we have the climax of a dramatic prophecy. In the last days, Gog, a leader of Rosh, which is Russia, Meshach, maybe Moscow, and Tubal, probably Tobulsk, will lead a vast army down out of the north and invade Israel. You see also Ezekiel 38. God says himself that he will fight and destroy Gog and his army and send fire upon Magog, though other scriptures indicate that it's possible the Antichrist may try to take credit for this. The whole prophecy is fascinating. And so Israel will emerge victorious in a fantastic upset, the greatest military upset in history. Ezekiel 39 says, Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and bucklers, the bows and arrows, the javelins and spears, and they will make fires with them for seven years. And it will come to pass in that day that I will give Gog a burial place there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by east of the sea, and it will obstruct travelers, because there they will bury Gog and all his multitude. Therefore, they will call it the Valley of Hammon Gog. For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. Indeed, all the people of the land will be burying, and they will gain renown for it in the day that I am glorified, says the Lord God. Also, in the last days, the Lord says to his people, quote, Behold, at that time, I will deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather those who were driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. At that time, I will bring you back even at the time I gather you, for I will give you a name and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I return your captives before your eyes, says the Lord. That's in Zephaniah chapter 3. So we see the name Shem is pertinent. The people of Israel will have fame and renown in those days. Next, how about Ham? Any heat? Any fire in the last days? You bet. Out of Zechariah 13, it says, And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it, and I will bring the one-third through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, This is my people, and each one will say, The Lord is my God. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Zechariah thirteen eight through fourteen one. These will be hot, fiery times indeed. Now, finally, what about Japheth? 
are the Jewish people widespread, scattered? Son of man, it says in Ezekiel 36, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. So I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the countries. There you go. But I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Indeed, all three names of Noah's sons are, as you can see, very pertinent to the picture of the Jews in the last days. But we might think, so what? Why is this of any importance? The pictures and symbols we look at are irrelevant unless they teach us something. What we learn here is that God had a foreknowledge of the Jewish people and their character long before they even existed as a people. In addition, he knows what they will face in the last days, and he will preserve them in the midst of the worst times the earth has ever known. He will bring them renown. He will bring them through the fire and bring them back together in the last days of tribulation, just as he brought these sons of Noah into the ark. Well, okay, here we go. Genesis continues. The earth was corrupt. It means destroyed, decayed, ruined, perverted. Before God and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. The word for flesh here refers to the male sex organ, by the way, for man and animals. The picture here isn't pretty at all. The creation was in the agonizing throes of a brutal masochistic death. Violence and sexual perversion were everywhere. Sounds like Hollywood to me. In fact, it sounds strikingly similar to our contemporary culture. Genesis goes on, And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. Interestingly, the word pitch comes from the word atonement, meaning a covering. We could say that the ark was covered inside and out with atonement. And just how does one enter into the sheltering atonement of God? You know, by accepting Jesus Christ's atoning death. Isn't that great? But the ark serves also as a very important picture for us in these present times, for it's a type of the Lord, and in particular, his protection during the coming flood of tribulation. 
Noah and his family entering the ark is a beautiful picture of the Jews' salvation and preservation in these perilous days to come. In the book of Revelation, we find that during the Great Tribulation, Satan will send a flood of of his own in an attempt to destroy the Jewish saints. It says, Now, when the dragon, Satan, saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman, that's Israel, who gave birth to the male child, that's Jesus. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time, that's three and a half years, from the presence of the serpent, that is, the Antichrist. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. Maybe anti-Semitic lies? But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Look at Revelations 12 for all of that. But Genesis goes on, And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, and its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Do you know that it took man all the way to the 1800s to rediscover that these dimensions are the perfect ones for this type of a nautical vessel. The British Navy came to that conclusion and has built these specs since then. Genesis goes on, You shall make a window in the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above, and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Well, this is quite interesting, for we see that the ark had three decks, and we'll examine this more in chapter 7. Genesis goes on, And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth, to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. You know, I like the way this passage emphasizes the male and female, especially the one-to-one ratio. And this is significant. Remember that in those days, the demons or demon-possessed men were taking many, many wives, and all flesh had corrupted God's principles of relationship. Noah, in that time, when it was the norm to have multiple mates, was just faithful to one, as were his sons. In our own day, the norm is also to have multiple sexual relationships. Beginning in early teens on up, it is increasingly rare for a man and woman to be faithful to each other and build 
their singular relationship. In fact, in most recent stats I know of, they say that the average marriage in the U.S. now only lasts just six to seven years. God, in starting over, is again emphasizing the soundness of the one-to-one relationship for life, even over the repopulation of the planet. Certainly, if I were in God's shoes and were concerned about repopulating, hmm, I'd have had Noah take for himself several ladies aboard. Not really. That would have been the logical thing to do, though, but the Lord is beautifully exalting this fundamental principle of relationship, and we would do well to take heed. It's also a testimony to Noah's wife in the sense that she stood by her husband. She could have written him off as loony, you know, one brick short. I mean, this was more than an extra nine holes of golf or a hobby fixation. This project took up to 120 years, and Noah evidently stood alone, but his wife stood with him. Bless your heart. Genesis goes on, Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded him, so he did. The key words here are did and all. Noah was a man of action and obedience. Too many folks too often claim, you know, to be waiting on the Lord when God has already spoken. Some are waiting for thunder in the heavens to ring out his directions while their Bibles gather dust on the nightstand. Faith without works is indeed dead. Thank you, James. Noah is a hero of faith because he did all God said. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. That's Hebrews 11.7. Christian faith is indeed expressed in many ways, most especially through love. But it is never a matter of pretending or lethargy. Faith and works go hand in hand. What if Noah just told everyone of God's coming judgment but never built the ark? What if he started the ark but then got bored? What if he just got discouraged for lack of converts and gave up? What if he figured putting pitch on all the ark? Well, that's just too much, Lord. Obedience that is incomplete is not obedience. Thank the Lord, Noah was completely obedient. Now may the Lord grant you peace in the midst of any storm and faith to trust Him. Look for our next podcast and may you realize more of His grace today.